is Secret Sauce Podcast, a podcast about the secret ingredients of art, work, and life. And I'm Becca Borelli, your host and illustrator. And this is episode four and part three, the final part of the SAF uh, chunk, if you will, of episodes. Um, And I want to wrap it up with a conversation about work specifically artists work um I want to expound a little bit on something that I've touched on in the first two parts of this series which is that artists are not merely making a product that is tangible although that is an important part of what they do artists also um use that object of their creation to energetically serve the culture that they are doing invisible work too and I would argue it is as important if not more important sometimes than the physical work they're doing Um, and that energetic work is a lot of things but I think a really quick way to summarize it for the sake of this podcast is to just say that artists feel under the surface of the world and they extract information that they find meaningful there And they use that energy and information to create works that serve people. I want to talk about that more because that idea is so fascinating to me. I find the energetic work of artists fascinating. I also recognize that my language in this episode is going to be so limited to talk about it because we still culturally don't really understand a lot of stuff that's invisible to the eyes and not tangible with sound or touch or smell. Um, And yet we're really collectively waking up to the presence of invisible forces in our world Um, in (laughs) in no small part in our sciences, right? Like I'd say about a century ago, we, you know, the the ideas in quantum science and quantum mechanics first kind of came on the scene and started saying we have proof we have research that there are lots of things going on like powerful things going on that are not readily detectable by the five senses and so i i wanted to expound on this to the best i don't know to the extent that i'm able And also to sort of acknowledge my limitations early on in this episode because um, I'm using story as a way to try to brush up against that thing, but that it will be, it will fall short. I mean, it's guaranteed to fall short. And in some ways, maybe that's good for now. That's interestingly the origin of story in our, on our planet is people sitting around campfires using Examples in their lived experience to try to brush up against deeper, more eternal truths that that defy language. Um, story is a bridge between things that defy language to language itself, and so we'll be trying to do that in this episode a little bit. Um, in in the realm of working as a sensitive person creatively. Um, It's also a really interesting time to be talking about this because we're in a pandemic 
and <clears throat> excuse me, and we're we're running into lots of um, noise sometimes on social media and on the traditional forms of media about using this time productively, and there's lots of strong opinions on both sides of that you know there's some people saying this is unprecedented time of space for lots of people I've said that it's true um it's a wonderful time to produce things if you feel invited to do that um also this is a wonderful time to not produce things and instead to produce invisible things and I'd like to even sort of touch upon, I I follow some pretty cool um, counselors on my Instagram. Some of them are my friends and something that they have collectively been sort of saying to their clients as well as to the community at large is if you are just getting out of bed and feeding yourself, that's great. And I'd like to even sort of take that idea a step further in this episode and say, Yeah, that's great, but also acknowledge that if that's all you can do right now, it's because your energy body is working like hell. (laughs) Our culture still doesn't acknowledge the creative work of our energy bodies at all. And so when we see people who are physically not producing a lot, there's this sort of sense, even if we're like not judging them, which let's, let's be honest, the culture does judge them um but even if we're sort of in the space where we recognize that judgment is not helpful or what's going on there is still this sense that they're not doing anything right and I'd like to sort of posit this idea that they're actually doing so much in the invisible realm and that's why they are just having to slow down or come to a total stop in the physical world. And a lot of a lot of people are there right now, whether they identify as an artist or not. They are doing so much energetic work and some people doing so much energetic work and physical work that it's impossible to be productive in the physical world. Impossible. And yet because we have constructed this very aggressive, I would I would use that word aggressive sort of market mindset that you are what you produce physically. And if you're not producing physically something, you're worthless. I mean, there's huge portions of our population in America, just speaking strictly here in my country, that commit suicide over this when they lose their jobs, when they lose all sense of meaning because that's how the metric is largely in our economy. If you're not producing something in the physical world, you are worthless. And I think the reason a narrative like that can take hold to begin with is because we've, we have such a poor understanding of the energetic work that people are doing. That often when people are out of physical work, the energetic work they're doing is bananas off the chain. So I want to elaborate on that today by telling you a story of of a time that this happened in my life. Um, So here we go. So I was the first. So 
actually, to start the story off, let me just say that this experience of mine was in some ways similar to the pandemic we're in now, only on a micro level, like on an individual level. And one of the similarities is that in 2008, 2009, my life ground to a halt, like business as usual, like screeched (laughs) to a stop. And I... I experienced what I could only liken to a massive interruption. And while the interruption that I experienced then was very different than the one that we're collectively experiencing right now, it functioned in a very similar way. And this is kind of what happened. I, I was a school teacher. I was waiting tables um, two weeknight evenings and then one or two of the weekends. I rarely had a day off, a full day off. I was very sort of committed to being the best adult I could be. (laughs) So I was in the midst of working these two jobs so many hours a week to pay off my school debt, to show that I was a good adult. I also was getting up at 4 a.m. many mornings and working out at the gym in a spinning class to manage the unsustainable nature of this shit. Um, After about a year of that routine, I ended up going to a psychologist who recommended that I meet with a psychiatrist and get put on anxiety medication, which I was. And this shit, (laughs) it, um, it it was not for me. And yet it was very important in that time because I didn't know what else to do. And it, um, it helped me sort of navigate a very unsustainable situation for a short period of time. And also in, in a sort of similar way, it, it allowed me to continue doing really fucking shitty stuff to myself. Um, the, the anxiety medication made it so that I could continue that really unsustainable life, um, without completely drowning, at least for a little while. Um, and it also, like, one of the side effects of it was that I needed very little sleep um, because I hated taking it in the morning. I was on this high dose of it, and I would, it would make me nauseous. I was supposed to take it in the morning with breakfast, and then it would ruin my whole school day teaching. So I started taking it at night before bed, and I would actually be so exhausted from my, like, insane days that I would fall asleep. And then, but then this drug would eventually kick into overdrive about four hours into my sleep cycle and I'd wake up and, and incidentally, (laughs) after serving some evenings, four hours of sleep was all I could afford myself anyway. And I would, so it was like, good. I, I'd wake up at four, ready to go to start the cycle all over again. And this was insane. Like even just saying it to you right now, it's insane. I'm sure those of you listening to this might even sort of be wondering, how did this woman do this without recognizing what she was doing to herself? And, and others of you might also be nodding your heads and be like, oh yeah, I remember telling myself some toxic stories that like made me do some really toxic things thinking that they were a good idea. You know, I really, the story of this time y'all was you are weak and you got a lot to prove. And the more you hurt, the more you're doing it right. I mean, that's a narrative a lot of people can relate to, I think. And the thing about a narrative like this, unchecked, is that your body (laughs) 
has limitations and minded too. And if you're, and your soul, your soul is a gentle being, right? It's not going to scream in your face. Um, it will just gently give you this very, this very subtle urging and, and you can quash, you can quash the soul down easily. Um, and I did for a long time, but the body, oh, the body will get, the body will fuck your shit up if you ignore it for long enough. If you ignore your soul for long enough, your body will, will speak up. And in 2008, 2009, my life started to fracture. The system that I'd created in my life was a lot like our global collective system. It was so unsustainable, but I had been forcing it to work for a long time. And eventually I just ran up into the limitations <laughs> that that were like just naturally present and everything in my life started to break. And I could talk for a long time about what sort of happened, but um, it was just sort of like on every level, I experienced a screech to a halt. My relationship of three years ended. It was good that it ended, and yet um, it was a painful ending. It was a stressful ending. It was, um, it felt like a failure. What did I just invest three years of my time into? I was very unclear on how that relationship served me for a long time. Um, I began to get really physically sick. And the, that final year in 2008, I started to get so sick that I was getting these massive, really super infections. And I was going on increasing levels of intense antibiotics. And that year I had, I think, six different rounds of antibiotics. And by the winter time, I was so miserable. I mean, those things wreck your gut, y'all. And when your gut bacteria is wrecked, it just ruins your psychological health too. And I didn't understand that then. That's not knowledge I had a conscious understanding of, but I subconsciously knew that this wasn't okay. And so in the winter of 2008, when I got, I got, um, I got sick and I was like, I knew it was an infection and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that shit again. And I stubbornly tried to like heal myself, which is ridiculous. Like who is possibly able to heal themselves when their life is like mine <laughs> or was how mine was, you know? And I ended up in the ER with the early stages of organ failure, um, a resting heart rate of like 225 or something. Like they had to pump me full of penicillin. Um, it was really scary. And I also was just experiencing spiritual and mental breakdowns. I, I have this vivid memory of being on the phone with a friend of mine and being ridiculously unhinged and like almost like sobbing, screaming. <laughs> and at one point she interrupts me and she's like, Becca. And she yelled it so loud into the phone that I, sh I it like snapped me out of the spiral, you know? And she said, if you don't stop it, I'm getting off the phone. And it was like, it was like the absolute thing I needed to hear because I was drowning. And she was like, hey, what is this? This is not okay. And if someone had told me to be productive during this time, I might've strangled them, right? 
And so if people are in this space right now, (laughs) in this collective shutdown, the, the last thing they need to hear is to be productive. And yet this breakdown, this terrible contraction in my life. I mean, it was so, so uncomfortable and so painful. Um, What it did is it created a ton of clarity, a ton of clarity. I was suddenly facing in this fresh way (laughs) what I had been doing to myself. I talk about this a little bit on an Instagram TV episode that I just posted recently about contrast. This breakdown was jarring. It was so jarring. And in some ways, that's how contrast functions in artwork, right? When there's something really dark and dense next, next to, on the same canvas, something very light and airy, the clarity is so easy to see and your eyes immediately go to that place. Contrast creates focus and attention, always. And the contrast of this breakdown immediately snapped me out of this numb day-to-day grind that was killing me. And in that way, the breakdown was incredibly artistic, incredibly artistic. It gave me, it gave me focus. It made me understand for the first time what needed to be done. And that was the beginning of moving to Austin, although I didn't realize it. I just knew that something needed to change and it felt like it had to be big. And I remember, interestingly, If you decide to try to change um, in a big way, a lot of people that are still sort of um, in that comfortable day-to-day space, they'll be be alarmed. And and my family and friends were no exception. I immediately decided that I was going to go to graduate school, which wasn't in and of itself terribly weird. I had to get a master's degree in my home state of Ohio to renew my teaching license anyway, but I decided I didn't look at any schools in Ohio. I was actually eligible for a sabbatical, an unpaid sabbatical with my district. I'd been teaching there for five years and I decided to take it and it felt safe. You know, here I can, I can leave. I can put my toes in the water of another city and another school. And if I'm miserable, I can always go back to my job. Um, And even still, that that really dramatic change freaked a lot of people out. Who's and because my life was in such compression and such contraction, I was in so much pain that that was what needed to happen. But to other people who weren't in that pain, it looked erratic. I don't blame them. But but some people were. It really triggered some people. Actually, interestingly, it triggered some people who were in their own pain. Um, I remember I had a friend um, who told me on the phone in the midst of the move to Austin. um, He scolded me like a child and said, you're too old to be doing this. I was 30 at the time. He's like, you're too old to be doing this. He said, you have a great job. He said, you, your family's nearby, you have your health, which was like, I mean, let's be honest, y'all, I didn't have my health, but. <laughs> and I remember getting off the phone with him and crying because he, gave, he put words to my deepest fear, which was, you don't deserve to feel better. You got to keep grinding, <laughs> you know, you got to get back to business as usual. That's where it's safe. 
collectively we're there right now. You're, we're going to start seeing some erratic changes, right? We already are. We're, there's things in our government that even five months ago would have been considered freaking radical. And now it's like common sense. And yet, right, there's this business as usual energy that's like, no, 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 we got to open the economy. We got to get things back to the way they were, right? And I'm definitely not even trying to make a political statement with this episode at all, just that there's something very similar in the pattern of how interruptions, severe interruptions work, right? Um, and, And there's this sense that something big has broken and something massive has to change. And yet there's also that fear response too of like, no, we have to get back to how it was. And I was going through that in my life, you know, but the contrast, the interruption was, it, it functioned exactly as it was supposed to. Um, because when I got to Austin, my life broke open in the most beautiful way. I mean, not to be cliche, but it was like butterflies just came like flying out of my chest, you know, (laughs) like, um, it was in Austin. Nobody knew me. I had no, it was like a blank canvas and I could take all of the things I learned from the breakdown of my life and apply them. And I'm not sure if that's, what's going to happen now. But I suspect that in a lot of areas of our civic life, our shared life on this planet, there are organizations and individuals who choose to face the breakdown in their own organizations, in their own communities, in their own personal lives, will, on the other end of that, have a blank canvas to create something new on should they choose it. And I was ready. I was ready, right? And... I I took it. Um, I started biking everywhere because my car broke down and I I just decided not to get a new one for the first year. I started jogging every day because I had the space and energy to do that. I began making art and seeing like-minded people. I was in a graduate art education program that fed my soul. I got to wait tables at the Four Seasons Hotel and meet fascinating people and work with fascinating people. It was such a lovely time of conscious creation on this new Austin canvas. I was convinced, by the way, (laughs) that, like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I was convinced that the Cinderella story was absolutely at play. The breakdown in Ohio, the breakdown in my life had been so massive that when I came to Austin and experienced this bliss for like three solid years, by the way, um, I was convinced I'd won the lottery and that this was my Cinderella happy ending. Um, cause we want to believe that, right? We want to believe that's how change works. And then you're just happy forever. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> and I thought my happily ever after was because I'd moved to Austin and it wasn't as soon as I got out of grad school and took my first day job again at Trader Joe's, everything came back because I hadn't actually healed myself. I had just changed (laughs) the space I was in. And it had been important, by the way, that I had moved to Austin. Um, The experience of my first three years in Austin showed me it was possible 
showed me that I wasn't crazy, showed me that radical, amazing creative change and true freedom and bliss in my soul was possible. And I, but I, I, re- <laughs> I remember in 2013, I just met Jason. We were just starting to date. I took this job at Trader Joe's. My mental health plummeted. And I remember crying to him about it. And he said, Becca, he's like, you're never going to get grad school back. That's not how adult life is. He goes, but the happiness that you had there, you can recreate that. And I, I remember it gave me pause. And he, he was right. But it meant that all of the stuff that was inside me that had led to me creating the life in Ohio, <laughs> that life that was so unsustainable, um, it meant that I had to face the stuff in there. And between 2014 and 2019, This podcast is getting recorded on the uh, on the end of five years of intense healing. It was so insane. I like I don't I don't even know if I want to talk about it yet. <laughs> I will be talking about it more, but I mean I don't have words for it. It was so it was so much, but I don't want to suggest that it was it was bad or that it was good. It just was. It was just so much. Um, And I'm just now in 2020 starting to feel the beginnings of the feelings I had in 2010 when I moved to Austin. And I'm so excited to share some of those stories with you because those stories saved my life. Um, And and it saved my spiritual life, you know. How many people do we know that are physically fine and spiritually dying, you know? How does this relate to artists? <laughs> are all of you who are artists wondering where, when I was going to talk about that? I, I wanted to tell this story because in, in my experience, a lot of creative, sensitive people are really good at this soul work. Um, they're actually, they're good at it. Like that's like, they spend lots of time hanging out in energy places all the time. They, they're comfortable in the depths, you know, but I think a lot of people, myself included, have bought into the narrative that that's not work. And it makes me think a little bit of Mr. Rogers, right? Who used to say, you are amazing. Just sitting there doing nothing. You are worthy of love doing nothing. You are worthy to be here doing nothing. You matter to this planet doing nothing. Because he understood that even just sitting in a room, we are profoundly impactful to the collective. If that sounds abstract, let me give you an example. I've talked about this on my Instagram uh, TV before. I used to be an elementary school teacher, and I would watch, like, seasoned veteran teachers walk into a room of crazy five-year-olds and the five-year-olds would fall silent within 10 seconds without the teacher saying a word, without the teacher clapping their hands, without the teacher raising their hand, without their teacher, without the teacher making a sound. Because the presence, the conscious presence, someone who knows how to create with energy can influence other people with their energy. Just sitting in a space is creative. 
but it's most creative when people know how to use it like those teachers, right? What are we creating when we sit in a room in silence? What are the ideas that are bubbling up in our mind and going out into the world and influencing the world, you know? And I, I want to tell this to artists because, y'all, artists, if they could give themselves permission to not only do this work, but to recognize the validity of this work and the power that this kind of work takes and the strength that this kind of work extracts from us, then all of the poisonous narratives of I'm lazy, I'm too weak to handle the world, I need to just like grind and learn how to be good at business and learn how to be tough. You know, artists deny their talents because they're so busy trying to be a capitalist version (laughs) of what a good producing artist is. And I'd like to suggest we're moving out of that time. An artist is no longer going to be as good as what they physically produce anymore. An artist is going to be as good as how they energetically heal the souls of people around them with their work. And if they're going to heal people, they have to heal themselves first. And if they're going to heal themselves first, they have to stop with some of those stories. Those stories have to stop. And as I'm saying these like very bold sort of like calls to action, if these just feel exhausting to you, that's fucking fine. <laughs> if you if you're just putting on your pajamas and not thinking about soul work at all, that's fine. It's it, there's no way to screw this up. We're all doing the work that we need to be doing right now. The problem is is that we've been taught that a lot of the work that's happening isn't valid and isn't there. But if you're just dragging yourself out of bed, I really want to leave you with this thought that you're you're doing so much work. You just were raised in a culture that doesn't acknowledge it. I'm getting ready to hop on to a Zoom art class here with Laguna Gloria. I have to go. But I really wanted to record this because it was just like in the back of my throat and I knew it needed to come out. I hope you share this with people that you think need to hear it. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Please, if you if it resonates with you, please consider leaving me a five-star review. It helps this get in front of other artists and people that might also like it and have um and and be served by it i love y'all thank you for supporting this podcast your messages and your kind words and your social media engagement have meant the world to me until next time peace